You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. From a European point of view, uh, there's a lot of disappointments. There's basically, uh, uh, you know, annual summits, regular meetings, regular demands, market access, reciprocity, all these words. Very little feedback from China. Very little uh, being delivered. And it, it's becoming a problem. When China started promoting its Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, Europe was always going to be a key destination for both the Belt and the Maritime Road, with an open goal of targeting the European consumer market. While Beijing has tried to promote its initiative across Europe, the Belt and Road concept remains unclear to a lot of Europeans. In addition, it's been hard to differentiate between Chinese foreign direct investment and Belt and Road-related projects, which have been scarce in the European Union. Meanwhile, the European Union has launched its own connectivity strategy, which makes Chinese objectives of offering to build infrastructure to European countries ever more challenging. On October 8th, Philippe Lacour, research associate at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and the Mozavar Romani Center for Business and Government, led a discussion titled China's Belt and Road Initiative, Impact and Perceptions in Europe. Anthony Sage, Ash Center Director, Daybook Professor of International Affairs, moderated. Okay, good afternoon, uh, everybody. Obviously, the combination of Philippe, uh, BRI, and Pizza is a, is a clear winner. Before we start, there's just a couple of announcements to make. Uh, today's uh, talk is being audio recorded and photographed for educational purposes, so it will be available on the uh, Ash Center website after this. Uh, secondly, this is a co-sponsored uh, course with the Fairbank Center for Public Studies, uh, of the director of which is standing over here, Mike Tony, and also the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at HGS, where John Haig is here as the director. So we're very lucky uh, to have uh, Philippe with us. Uh, there's a lot of confusion, uh, as you know, about Belt and Road. What does it really imply and what does it really cover? And as a number of studies have shown, that much of the Chinese investment uh, still actually falls outside of those countries that have been formally uh, declared as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But what Philippe is looking at is a really, I think, interesting, evolving set of questions, and that's about China's engagement in Europe. And of course, Europe's response has been very divided uh, between different countries. Uh, uh, for example, Greece, Hungary, responding somewhat differently uh, to other uh, countries in that process. And what Philippe has been able to do, I think, is really two things. First of all, through the painstaking research, he's been able to piece together uh, the trails of investments that China has been making uh, throughout uh, the broad uh, definition of Europe, so not just the European Union. And then secondly, he's begun to, I think, piece together in an interesting fashion uh, a slowly uh, evolving response on behalf here primarily of the European authorities to how they want to deal with Chinese investments uh, moving forward. Uh, Philippe himself has a very uh, distinguished and varied career. He's been working with the French Ministry of Defense. Uh, he's uh, published prolifically, uh, both in terms of books, but also in terms uh, of many articles. So what we'll do is Philippe will talk for roughly 30 minutes, and then we'll open it up for uh, Q&A uh, after that. So please uh, join me in welcoming Philippe uh, to speak with us. Thank you very much, Tony. I'm delighted to be, to be back after uh, just a couple of months of uh, leave, uh, so to speak. Um, I'm going to, uh, first of all, let me thank, uh, again, uh, the Ash Center and Tony, the Mosava Ramani Center, uh, and the Fairbank Center. All of them have been uh, supporting me over the past uh, two and a half years. Um, and uh, as Tony said, I've been working on China and Europe. And obviously, uh, today's topic I couldn't avoid the concept of belt and roads, uh, although I'm going to disappoint some of you by saying that the relationship between China and Europe is not so much about belt and roads, uh, but, but it's a much bigger picture. Uh, and the bigger picture is about um, uh, China's rise and how Europe reacts to it. Um, and also, um, 
we will look at um, um, some aspects uh, that includes the perceptions of, of the Belt and Road. Um, but first, let me um, try to go back to the origin of this term. Uh, and you will, you will notice that in my presentation, I don't use Belt and Road Initiative, but I use B and R, uh, Belt and Road. Um, why is that? Because I think six years after this concept was launched by President Xi Jinping in um, both Astana and Jakarta, uh, it's time that we don't call it an initiative, but maybe uh, either a strategy, either nothing, just call it Belt and Road. Uh, the Belt, of course, is the Silk Road economic belt that goes through uh, various routes of Central Asia. Uh, and the road, uh, strangely enough, is the Maritime Silk Road. And both of them, as you see in this very simplified map, uh, lead to Europe. And it's a uh, 520 million <coughs> consumer market. And that's if, all, if we only count the European Union, of course. If we go further than that, it, we're talking about 720 million consumers. That's the EU, the Balkans, Norway, Turkey, Ukraine, uh, you name it. It's a, it's a, you know it's a massive continent, and of course the EU being by far the most uh, uh, attractive in terms of uh, you know um, um, uh, economic uh, developments. So the um, the BRI's uh, scope is is not very is not very it's still not very clear. It's not fixed. And it's in continuous expansion. Of course, you could argue that the two uh, uh, Belt and Road uh, Forum that took place in Beijing in 2017 and 2019 uh, both sort of gave some concrete aspects to this uh, to this concept. But it's still, you know, an ongoing project, um, and um, the project is about, um, of course, exporting. Uh, Chinese overcapacity, uh, interacting with different parts of the world. Now, unlike the, the, the original concept, at least uh, that's the way many of us read it, it's now reaching out to you know, all parts of the world, including Latin America, Africa, Australia, um, and, and even the Middle East. So Europe happens to be the most, perhaps, developed um, market where, where Chinese export can, can develop and can, can expand um, and also gain some expertise, uh, technology, uh, as well as geopolitical influence in, 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 in you know, Europe being, of course, unlike America, surrounded by other continents, other regions, the Middle East, Africa, uh, both regions being also very attractive uh, uh, to China. Um, one reason Europe uh, is, is a story uh, for um, uh, the Chinese leadership is, of course, the U.S.-China relationship is, has reached one of its lowest points uh, in 2019. And, and of course, uh, counterbalancing this uh, situation with another uh, sort of developed partner, uh, although it's really not unique, it's not one partner, it's, it's a mixture of partners. And I'll come to that, of course, in the next uh, half hour or so. Uh, but it's very important that Europe is there as a counterbalance to, uh, to the US. Um, now, the real story is um, Europe's relationship with China. Both places, and if you, I'm going to talk mainly about the EU, obviously, but uh, the, the EU and China are almost each other's biggest trading partners. Every day, they exchange $1.1 billion of goods, uh, daily trade. From the 1990s, European companies, especially from Germany, from France, started investing in China. Now, obviously, this was a lot about technology transfers. This was about Chinese markets. And even European companies were fighting against each other for a share of the Chinese market. As we'll see later, uh, the competition now is in Europe to get a share of Chinese capital. Uh, interesting developments. Um, economic relations became closer when China joined WTO in 2001. And, and, and of course, from a Chinese point of view, the, the Zhou Chu policy 
starting in the 1990s until under uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Zhu Rongji, um, allowed Chinese companies, particularly private ones, to uh, send some of their companies to Europe to search for brands and technology. That was one of the original reasons for, uh, for uh, investing um, uh, around the world, but in Europe in particular. And on, on a political level, I would say that China was pretty good at balancing the relationship uh, with the various actors in China. Um, you know, it understood pretty well the, the role of the European Union. I remember, actually, I was here uh, 16 years ago uh, during the enlargement in 2004. It was a big deal. You had 12 new countries joining the EU. From a, from a Chinese point of view, it was a very positive move because it was a bigger market, you know? Let's go for it. And then we'll choose London as, as, as our headquarters. Of course, no, nobody had I any idea what David Cameron was going to do. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, 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 and, and still, still counting. Um, and and in, in fact, it was interesting. I also uh, followed pretty closely uh, Xi Jinping's visit to London in 2015. And, in, in, you know, it's one of the very few occasions where he... He, you know, he made some comments on, on, on a foreign country, uh, uh, you know, on basically the relationship between the UK and, and the EU. And he said, well, you know, the UK should, should remain in the EU, you know, a strong UK and a strong EU. I don't know whether he would say that now, uh, but in any case, it looks like uh, our, our British friends will be, will be out at some point, uh, sooner rather than later. Um, anyway, um, going back to the main argument, which is really... Uh, Chinese FDI in Europe. Uh, I think it's 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 important to to keep in mind that um, main the main uh, Chinese investments first of all are targeting countries that have not been signing MOUs with China on the Belt and Road. So uh, that's really one of the main points I want to underline in this in this uh, short presentation. But if you look at the main countries, so if you, depending who, 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 which figures you're looking at, American Enterprise Institute talk about $340 billion of, of, of uh, Chinese FDI for the past decade in the whole of Europe, including non-EU countries. Um, Rodion Group uh, has slightly lower figures. In any case, UK is first, Germany is second, Italy and France uh, are third and fourth. These are all sort of major developed economies. These are not the Eastern European countries or the Southern European countries that are perhaps weaker, certainly in, in, in the Balkans. You can speak about very weak states. These are major uh, companies, Syngenta, Chifa, Putzmeister, Daimler. These are major Western, I mean, European companies. So timing and geography are not necessarily aligned with the Belt and Roads. In addition, since 2018, the investment boom has um, ended, and we're now down to um, uh, 22 billion euro of investments, 40% drop from 2017 to uh, 2018. Um, now, obviously, this, this is due mainly of, of um, Chinese uh, decisions to um, to restrict private capital outflow, um, which, which really speaks volumes about China's strategy when it comes to uh, geoeconomic developments. It's not, it's not just private business people. In fact, as you know, 70% uh, of Chinese FDI in Europe are, are state-owned enterprises. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very political move for China to allow its companies to, to invest overseas. When you have uh, the founder of Geely, this, this automobile company, uh, buying 10% of Daimler um, and, and getting uh, uh, you know, uh, $9 billion overnight to, to get that stake, uh, don't tell me it's not a political decision. Uh, you know, it, it's happening very quickly. And the Chinese banks and the sovereign funds, of course, are helping whenever the political decision to invest in, in one of the European countries uh, has been made. In addition, and I'll come back to that in my conclusion, um, the Europeans have somewhat 
started to put their acts together by launching a little bit similar to the Americans. Uh, you, some of you may, may know about the CFUS mechanism, a, a, a screening mechanism that is looking at investments in critical infrastructures and technology. This mechanism, by the way, is, has been announced, is legally, uh, uh, has been legally implemented, but it's, it's going to be enforced just in 2020. Uh, so I found out a few days ago. Um, but it's there. And there's no single European country that voted against it. At the same time, um, you know, national security issues remain part of national sovereignty. And, 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 and so when it comes to national security, uh, it's for individual governments to make decisions. It's not the EU. This, this mechanism, which is uh, non-binding, by the way, uh, is, is really a way to push... Um, individual EU states to um, put together a, a new screening mechanism themselves. Many of them did not have such a screening mechanism. And um, so, for example, Greece, which I'll, I'll uh, talk about as well, you know, is famous because of the Piraeus Harbor, which is, you know, one of the largest, mo most historical harbors in, in the Mediterranean area is now controlled by Costco, a top Chinese state-owned company. Um, they didn't have a, a, you know, a screening mechanism, and it was not considered as a strategic investment. Vastly overpaid, by the way, by, by, by Costco. But you know, with some fairly uh, successful outcome so far. Um, in addition to uh, economic presence, I, I would like to point out that uh, China is also uh, pushing its B BNR concept and globally its, its influence uh, in Europe by using sort of non-economic ways. Um, one has been the 16 plus one um, group of countries. These are mainly Eastern and, and Southern European countries, <coughs> countries at the periphery of Europe, not the main countries that receive the top FDI, uh, but those at the periphery, those that are perhaps in a weaker uh, uh, situation. And some of them have actually a long-standing relationship with China. It's very interesting when you speak from, and there might be people from Eastern Europe here, but when you speak to people from Eastern Europe uh, who travel to China uh, regularly, they speak to their Chinese friends and, and you know, very quickly in the conversations, you know, uh, <laughs> It's, it's very strange, you know, I don't, I don't get that as a, as a sort of Western European, but um, there is this impression in China that Eastern Europe belongs to the sort of uh, the, 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 the network of friends that China has, which, you know, honestly, it's a long story and we could talk about it, but when, you come to the, when it comes to the Czech Republic that welcome the Dalai Lama and Yu Xiaobo and a few people, I'm not too sure about that. It's a mixed picture, to say the least. In any case, we now have 17 members because Greece, which is not, of course, an Eastern European country, is now part of this group. That means once a year, usually with China's prime minister, Li Keqiang, uh, usually in Eastern Europe or in one of the 17, uh, and only once in China, in Suzhou. This, of course, has been very helpful for China to push through its Belt and Road um, uh, concept asking these countries, since they are members of, of, the, of the 17 plus one, why not just as well sign a, a, a BRI or a BNR, uh, a, a memorandum of, of understanding. Uh, so most of them have done so, but the result has been, you know, again, fairly mixed with very little result coming in terms of cash and, and, and you know, and pro Chinese projects. And so there's a bit of, you know, disappointment there. Uh, so, you know, if you're friends, you're supposed to help each other. Um, but um, so far, it's, it's really seen more as a political gesture from China rather than to help these countries to, to, to develop their uh, economies. Uh, as I said, the, the, the key investments from China still are uh, brands, technologies, in, you know, in infrastructures, uh, automobile, uh, 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 machine tools, 
semiconductors. That's what China wants. That's the Made in China 2025 uh, concept, although we don't hear about it as much as we, as we used to a few months ago. But it's still, you know, very uh, important to China. You could, you could add, you know, that, you know, the Confucius Institutes, the, what China is doing in Europe, uh, the Belt and Road seminars and so on, paid advertisements, that's also part of China's rise in Europe, which is, you know, which is really the story I'm talking about today. Now, the result of all this work and this, this increased Chinese presence is obviously, um, um, you know, mixed. Um, and, and, and even more so, you have perhaps a, a tougher response from the EU. As I said, the screening mechanism, um, there's also this EU-China strategic outlook that was published uh, by Brussels in um, March of this year uh, that basically calls China a strategic rival, sorry, a systemic rival. Systemic rival, you know, is, uh, as we say in French, you know, calling a cat a cat. Uh, the system of China is different from the systems of Europe. And, um, you know, although it, the EU also calls China a cooperation partner, uh, a negotiating partner, that would be the case in climate, for example. Uh, and um, also, you know, there's, there are a lot of cooperations. There, there are no less than 60 bilateral dialogues between the EU and China every year, including on human rights. But when Brussels talks about Hong Kong, not good. Uh, uh, when Brussels talk about Xinjiang, not good. So, you know, I'm not quite sure what they're talking about in this human rights dialogue. But anyway, um, what's most important here is really the... Um, the the, the new definition of this uh, uh, relationship and, and the fact that a number of the large European countries are now considering China more uh, as a rival and, and, and you know, should, should really um, uh, put their acts together to, to respond to China's rise. Now, another interesting aspect, um, looking at the time, perceptions of China. As I said, it's, it's still early stage in terms of studying the Belt and Road uh, effect on China. But a few people have done so, including Pew Research and Bruegel. And I'm doing some surveys myself at the moment. But um, you have here a number of uh, uh, European countries. And um, what's interesting is to look at the view of China. Um, now, the view of the United States has been declining. Uh, ever since the Trump administration has been in place. And I don't have charts on this yet, but it's easy to find. But the view of China is not really increasing. Um, and, and, and the BRI is still, you know, a very confused message. Um, many Europeans, when you ask them about the Silk Road, they kind of think about the past, about some, some magical concept that, will, that would link continents with each other. They're not really sure... Uh, of what it means, and they're not really sure of, of, of uh, what's been achieved so far. And in fact, you know, again, the, the, the result of the Belt and Road has been fairly mixed around the world. If you look at what happened in Sri Lanka, in the Maldives, in Malaysia, in, in Africa, there's been some backlash. But in Europe, since there hasn't been many much investment uh, BRI-related, there, there hasn't been a backlash on the BRI. There's been a backlash about China's rise. So that's main, my main message today is really that the story is the China-Europe relationship, as opposed to how the Belt and Road is, is uh, succeeding in Europe, because it's not. Another uh, element of this is, uh, is the Chinese leadership and, and how it's been seen uh, on the world stage. Um, and again, Pew is doing some work on this and um, interviewing a, a number of people. And there's a generally very low confidence in, uh, in, in, in Xi Jinping. Now, the, the message, the strong message that's been put forward in, in the 19th Party Congress, in the policy address, in the various speeches, including the one uh, on October 1st in Beijing, has, has not been very well you know, received, uh, at least in, 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 in Western Europe. 
and it, it may affect some of the, the investments. Um, Germany, Europe's key trading partner, the only country with a trade surplus, the only country in Europe with a trade or, 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 or almost balanced trade with China, is now saying the BDI, which is the, the Confederation of German Industries, is now recommending the tougher stance on China. At the same time, you have, of course, part of the German industries that want to continue to use the Chinese markets to, to especially to sell cars and, and, and machine tools and the, and the things were, uh, that made um, the, Chinese, uh, the, the, the German um, uh, industry very famous um, in, in China. One thing to point out as well is the fact Chinese investments in Europe have not produced a lot of jobs. And, and, and first of all, uh, we're not talking about a lot of greenfield investments. We're talking about acquisitions, and we're talking about infrastructure-related uh, investment. Stakes in harbors, uh, airports, uh, energy facilities, um, in, in Portugal, in Greece, in, in, in Italy, uh, in sometimes in Eastern Europe, in France, in Germany, all these places. They're, these have been fairly conservative investments that have not created a lot of jobs. Now, let me come to, to the sort of uh, the, the key parts. The unofficial white paper coming out of, of, of the European Commission, really pushed by the main players there that are Germany, France, somewhat the UK, Theresa May, former Prime Minister Theresa May, was fairly uh, cautious on China, unlike her predecessor and her successor. We'll see how long he lasts, but he's very, uh, he declared himself very pro-China. So anyway, that's you know, better, apparently better to be pro-China than pro-EU. And um, the, the latest EU-China summit that took place in, in April really started demanding things from the Chinese side. Uh, and, and the key word, of course, is reciprocity. Now, China doesn't like this word at all, uh, but because there's no such word in Chinese. And also, China considered itself as a uh, developing nation. Therefore, it should not be facing this kind of demand. But in Europe, now it's too late. They all think you know, reciprocity is, is, is necessary at this stage. And um, there's the question of procurement state contracts, the fact that, you know, if you're a European company, or indeed an American one in, in, in China, there are, there's a long list of sectors which you cannot bid for, where you cannot make business. And that's been a problem, because in Europe, that's not the case. So, you know, very, very unbalanced. Last but not least, September 27th, 2019, that was just a few days ago, uh, the EU has organized the connectivity conference in Brussels, following the launch of the connectivity strategy of the EU just about a year ago. Now, what is it all about? Well, that's Europe's BRI for you. Um, and, and in addition to the fact, uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan was there to sign a deal with the EU to implement some joint projects between Europe and uh, Japan, in both Asia and Europe, and in between, in you know, energy, in uh, uh, various various fields uh, that will be um, that will be looked at cyber, maritime. This is all very new, but um, it's interesting that there's a 60 billion uh, euro uh, provided, and that follows the Japan EU. Trade deal. Now, I'm sorry, it's not very good color, so let's forget about this slide. Uh, I'll go back to the last one, sorry. I think, really, to, to conclude, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting time that, you know, despite the fact the U.S.-China relationship has been so bad under uh, President Trump, uh, the, the Europe-China relationship is not really that good, to be honest. And from a European point of view, uh, there's a lot of disappointments. There's basically, uh, uh, you know, annual summits, regular meetings, regular demands, market access, reciprocity, all these words, very little feedback from China. Very little 
being delivered. And it, it's becoming a problem because obviously when China sees a Japan-EU agreement, they don't like it. Um, when, uh, when the EU signs free trade agreements with Vietnam, with, uh, with uh, Singapore, with, uh, perhaps tomorrow with India, uh, they don't like it either. But, you know, that's, that, there's a lot of work to be done from the Chinese side. And, and I think um, the, the Europeans are now sort of uh, dealing with China in a different way. Uh, it's not, no longer a divided Europe, uh, even though it looks like this, atomized, to say the least. But there is now a strong uh, leadership at EU level that says uh, China has become a big player. And Europe is not necessarily with America but not necessarily against China, but it's got its own way of saying things and, and uh, implementing its own policies. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions. Um, I find this really interesting because I think this fits into a much bigger set of issues and challenges that not just in the, the question of how countries trade are dealing with it but i think also how academia is dealing with this across the board that in a sense when china came into wto it was really like a baby in the global economy and now it's even more of a 500 pound gorilla than i am in the sense of its influence the way it's dominant within a lot of these practices and I think as a consequence of that, we're all trying to wrestle with the fact that how do you incorporate China uh, constructively further into the global order, but at the same time begin to think about the kinds of practices uh, which are less uh, supported by the international community. And I think this is another good example of where <clears throat> within the European Union, they're beginning to pull together a response. I think one of the first times it was noticed uh, by, for me was in September 2018, I think it was, when the trade ministers of Japan, European Union, and the United States all put out a joint declaration. It never names China specifically in the declaration, but it's very clear that almost every sentence, every paragraph is about uh, Chinese practices, whether it's... Uh, the domestic uh, practices or whether it's, it's international practices. And I think that's caused a surprise in China. That for a long time, people have been pushing China to be more transparent about its objectives and its activities. And in a sense, now that it has become more transparent, it's getting a lot more pushback from the international uh, community. Uh, as Philippe mentioned, um, Made in China 2025, although it's still going on, is not referred to anymore. It's been dropped. I think the last BRI uh, party in Beijing was significantly more restrained than the first one and less celebratory. Even Xi Jinping, I think, in his speeches was trying to indicate that China was taking into account some of these concerns related to the environment. It's not creating debt traps uh, and so on. It's more responsible uh, investing. So I think we're seeing this as a, as a much broader phenomenon. And this is an important part, I think, of that puzzle of how to, to deal with China's growth and emergence. I mean, China could say, and I think they're right, what we do in terms of our policies is our own business. Fair enough. But when it affects international businesses and the way they operate in China or how China operates internationally, <coughs> I think that goes beyond uh, China's own uh, specific interests. Um, so, I, one of the, the charts that really interested me, Philippe, was when you showed the figures. And of course, Italy is the one EU country which has signed on to the um, BRI. Uh, as a, yet, Italy had the most unfavorable um, evaluation of China, 60%. That interested me. I mean, other countries, Greece and Hungary, which China's been very active in terms of courting, certainly, as you said, with the Piraeus port uh, in, uh, in Greece uh, being important. Yet those two also had majorities that viewed China unfavorably. So there one could argue, well, if China is trying to use this to court 
uh, more popularity within the European Union and with some of the other countries outside of that framework. It's not really been working effectively. But um, I think we're meant to be using this one for, for, for during this period ahead. So um, with that, uh, let's open it up for, for questions from people. Uh, there should be a microphone to go around. Uh, try and keep it brief. Let us know who you are and try and make it a question, preferably. So I think this lady here had the hand up first and then the gentleman next to her second. Let's take two or three questions together. And, oh, and then uh, the gentleman over here in the room. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the lecture. And I'm Liu Ying. I'm a clinical visitor in Harvard Law School. I come from China. And just now in your presentation, you mentioned UK is taken as China's headquarters to invest or do trade in Europe. But there is a common event. Uh, UK will withdraw from Europe, maybe in the near future. So how do you look at this? Is that has any negative effect about China's future development in, I mean, economic investment sort of things in Europe? Yeah, uh, I'm Jerry. I'm a sophomore in college right now, also from China. I have a question about uh, what will the future uh, transatlantic relationship between United States and Europe will influence the EU stance towards China? As we all know that President Trump is also doing something that is not favorable towards the European Union, like the digital tax, like the tariffs to you know, Airbus and everything. So I'm wondering how would this lead to the EU stance, would that change towards BRI or EU-China's relationship, or it will still be remaining very you know, like aggressive or very uh, you know, firm as what it is right now? Let's... Malcolm. Take one more from Malcolm, and then let Philippe reply, and then we'll have another round. Thank you. I'm Malcolm McPherson at the Ash Center. Um, could you answer Tony's question, please? Because you said you were going to come back to Greece in your presentation, and I think that the, uh, his, what he asked is exactly the question I was going to ask. Why is it that Italy and Greece are so unfavorably viewed up and China's views so unfavorably there? What the background of that is? Right, thank you. Uh, well, maybe I'll start, I'll start with this. Um, in fact, you know, I've been looking at, at, at Pew figures for now the past six, seven years, and Italy uh, has, has been the most unfavorable to China uh, for forever, I would say. The, the other country, strangely enough, that was very unfavorable, and that is switching slightly, uh, is Germany. And uh, which is very strange because you know, Germany has, has been a, a very close uh, trade partner uh, to, um, to China. And at the same time, uh, you know, the Germans care a lot about environment, they care about human rights. There are a number of issues that have sort of uh, put them on, 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 on the other camp, so to speak. Um, at the same time, you know, they still think China is a great market. It's helping the German economy. In terms of Italy, I think the country is really uh, in, in, in a situation where, you know, uh, the, the government is, uh, is uh, you know, very uh, shaky and, and, you know, uh, there's a coalition that is always about to, uh, to collapse. Uh, uh, President Xi's visit in, uh, in March was... Um, coordinated by, by one side of the coalition against the will of the other side of the coalition, if that makes any sense. So, you know, there's a very confused situation. And, and you know, the, the thing is, you know, uh, he visited both Italy and France, and France got more out of the visit than Italy. So there's something I don't understand there, you know. And even though Italy actually signed the Belt and Road Memorandum of Understanding, so you know, I think that the Italians are maybe in a in a in a situation where they you know they feel uh, they don't want more foreigners. They they, they think their country is, is you know is doing badly, and and, uh, and of course Germany and France are in a, a different uh, situations. Uh, Greece, I think you know, Piraeus has been by and large a successful acquisition. Um, I'm I'm a little concerned that you know. Um, in terms of job creations, I don't think it's 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 been that good. But but and and, and you know now Costco runs the, the harbor, most terminals, uh, four out of six, 
um, in, but they are trying to expand, and then they are sort of facing local conditions, you know, the, the archaeological office of, of Greece or something like that, uh, you know, the elections and things like that. Um, so it, it's also uh, quite mixed. And as you can see here, it, it's still fairly small, you know, 1.9 billion uh, euro, as opposed to 47 billion in the UK. Turning to the UK now, um, very good question. So, um, in, in technically, in, uh, in two weeks, the UK is to leave the European Union. Although, you never know, it changes like every day, almost every minute. And uh, depending on what's happening, if Prime Minister Johnson doesn't shut down Parliament, or, or the Queen decides to change Prime Ministers, whatever, maybe a little too far-fetched. But, um, so, honestly, I think this country is much too busy to deal with its international relations right now. And I wouldn't like to be foreign secretary of the United Kingdom. Um, it, it's, so you had this sort of golden era, very, very uh, uh, extreme terms uh, of describing the UK-China relationship, which we could talk about because of, you know, when we hear about Hong Kong, obviously, uh, one cannot forget that uh, Hong Kong was a British colony for 150 years. So it's a very complex relationship. And switching from that, from the Opium Wars to the Golden Era, was slightly far-fetched, to, to say the least. Um, I think, you know, to be more serious, I think uh, London will remain a, a, an economic hub for some of the Chinese finance, uh, financial companies, banks, insurance, funds, and so on. Uh, in terms of industry, there's not much to do in, in, in the UK. And of course, the, the original idea behind uh, Xi Jinping's statement on, on uh, sort of uh, uh, pushing for a strong UK and a strong EU was that we will, we Chinese will benefit. Our companies will will station in London and we will use London as a hub for the rest of Europe. Now that looks increasingly unlikely, and 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 so now the, you know China has been very good at you know, exploring other ventures, other opportunities, and obviously. Frankfurt, Paris, Brussels, um, and uh, so, you know, it's not going to be that easy. But having said that, um, property prices are still very high in London, and that's mainly due to Chinese investors. So, you know, there, there will be more uh, Chinese investments in the UK uh, under the, the new regime. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say. Um, last, the transatlantic relationship. So um, even though the relationship between the, the, the U.S. and the U.K. and the, and the EU uh, has suffered some tensions, uh, thank you, President Trump. Um, you know, in many cases, the EU and, and, and the U.S. are on the same side of the table when it comes to China. By saying this, I'm not. Um, I'm not saying everybody should, should gang against China. I'm saying there are issues such as the one I mentioned earlier, reciprocity and procurement and market access. European and American companies have exactly the same vision. Uh, you look at the reports from European Chamber of Commerce, the American Chamber of Commerce, every year, year after year, they are saying the same thing. Um, so... Um, on, on, on the Belt and Road, for example, quite typically, European officials will never condemn the Belt and Road. They will not say, say we are against it, but they may not support it either. That's the European way. The U.S. way is to say it's all bad. You know, everything coming out of China is bad. Um, and so we disagree on that. But we are trying, I mean, I, when I say we, the Europeans are trying to push perhaps their, their own advantage in a situation that's been you know, very tense over the past couple of years. And that, I believe, will remain tense um, for, for, for the next few years. As you, if you hear people in both Democratic and Republican parties, they, they're not giving you a very uh, uh, optimistic uh, future. So I think, you know, what's interesting is between these two giants that will sort of... Um, be the main game, so to speak, in the next uh, decades, uh, they'll be the European way, which will be a bit different. And at the end of the day, the European market will remain very attractive to, to both Americans and Chinese, and of course, a few others. And uh, that's, that's something to be, to be uh, you know, 
quite hard to get when you're when you're the Europeans. Quite uh, you know you have to defend your what you have, your 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 assets, and certainly your your markets and your consumers. And that you know President Macron, for example, is going to be in China very soon. He said one thing, you know, in his first China visit that was in January last year. The Belt and Road shouldn't be one way; it's two ways. So that's going back to this idea of reciprocity. Yes, there's a lady there, one, two, and then three. So start over there, over here. Hi, my name is Wen. I'm a bright scholar from the Fairbank Center. Um, actually, the higher education sector of China is responding actively to the BNR initiative. Chinese universities uh, enrolled quite a lot of uh, international students from uh, BNR initiative countries during the past few years. You could say that the percent of international students from those countries increase uh, rapidly, but uh, the, the 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 picture is still very complex. Because on the one hand, Chinese universities are doing many efforts in uh, enrolling and training and uh, uh, providing education to those international students, but on the other hand, what the companies, those international Chinese companies, when they uh, when they uh, um, go out to, 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 to the Belt and Road Initiative countries, what they need, uh, most of them, most of uh, what they need actually is um, uh, those um, labor workers with the, with the limited, the limited qualifications, vocational education. So it's kind of conflict. So I'm wondering what do you think of the uh, prospects of, of China's higher education system and also how do you perceive, you know, the the demand of the local and also not those elite international students, but the local uh, labor workers? Hi, uh, my name is Ruth, and I'm a PhD student at HKS from Germany. And you briefly mentioned the unofficial white paper by the Commission on the um, like fostering European champions, and I was wondering what is your advice to European governments on that, also in the light of the cancelled merger between Siemens and Alstom last year, um, also because of the concerns that European like national companies will not be as competitive anymore if you go for um, European champions. Um, my name is Chen Yingyue, an issue fellow at Ad Center. Um, and my major is uh, political science. I'm very interested about uh, the an international relation, uh, relation about China. Uh, China uh, will, uh, China think, uh, his, uh, herself as a power in the world, hope that can be right peaceful way. And China initiated road and belt uh, initi uh, project, hope that can uh, rise and like the uh, world um, known herself better. So uh, from the investment, uh, your uh, data, and I mean the economic factor, what do you think China's role to achieve his, uh, achieve her um, international uh, aim uh, to write peacefully. Yeah, let's take those three. And then... Okay, uh, higher education is not really my, my field, but there are plenty of experts in the room. Uh, I would just say, you know, uh, I think the whole idea of the Belt and Road, it, it's a, it's a, you know, a cooperation, right? It, it, the idea is to cooperate with, with, with local countries. So, um, so in the case of, uh, you know, Kazakhstan or Pakistan, uh, uh, the idea is to use local workers. Um, in the case of uh, Western countries or developed countries, uh, the idea is to grant contracts to some of these companies. So the, our UK friends, I don't know why I've been targeting them for the past hour, but our British friends, I mean, part of the original uh, you know, deal was that British firms uh, Consultant, consulting firms would, would be getting a lot of engineering contracts uh, to build uh, infrastructures in, in Central Asia or South Asia or things like that. Now, I don't believe that's happening. But, I mean, on the higher education uh, uh, subject, um, I mean, I know China has been spending a lot of money, universities, think tanks, in, in encouraging uh, Belt and Road. Um, and, and, you know, even in Europe, there are conferences and seminars um, so far, you know, people don't really understand what's the Belt and Road. Um, they, they understand what China is, 
because one hears about China much more than we used to uh, in, in you know anywhere in the world, and that's of course uh, the result of uh, partly China's successful economic rise over the past 35 years, but also of of maybe the political stance that China has been taking for the past uh, couple of years and, and its uh, developments of, of all kinds, diplomatic, economic, uh, soft power, somewhat, not very successful, but soft, soft power, and militarily. And that, that brings me to the, to the third question about um, uh, the, the, the BRI uh, peaceful rise. So yes, on, on, Practically, it's it's a it's a peaceful rise, but but then you know you've got the Djibouti uh, naval base, and then in many parts of the world, of course, there is a a new sort of a, um, security dimension of the Belt and Road that is uh, arising. It's slightly early to to describe uh, uh, precisely, but certainly when you when you have such a wide range and ambitious project reaching out to all continents. Many places that are unfriendly, not just to threat to China, but to everybody. I mean, the, the environment is unfriendly, the geography is unfriendly. There are, there are all kinds of potential risks. You need a security dimension. So how is China going to handle this? On one hand, wanting to do a peaceful, uh, by the way, peaceful rise is no longer uh, part of the, the language. Uh, I haven't been hearing about peaceful rise for quite some time since the, the change of president, but anyway. Let, let's assume it's, it's peaceful, but certainly the, the recent developments, and including in Beijing uh, on October 1st, don't necessarily uh, translate into a peaceful image. That's, that's my impression. Uh, third question, which was the second actually, on, on the European champions. Well, I'm sorry about the Siemens uh, Alstom. I was a foreign correspondent in China in the 1990s. When, when both firms were competing for the high-speed train from Beijing to Shanghai, and eventually none of them got the deal. And, uh, you know, it's a very sad story. And now China Railways is now wanting to build railways in Europe, <laughs> including between Belgrade and Budapest, not yet between Paris and Berlin. Um, so I think, you know, um, it's, we need European champions. And, and, and some of the connectivity announcement that, that's been made uh, and the money that has been put on the table by the European Investment Bank, particularly, uh, is a good start, and certainly in the digital sector. Uh, so one question which I won't touch, because it, it, would, it would be a very long uh, subject to discuss, is 5G and, and, and the competition between the Chinese firms and two European firms, a uh, subject John knows a lot about. Um, you know, uh, Ericsson and Nokia, two European firms that are uh, able to provide 5G technology. No American firm, I'm afraid. Uh, and, and, and then the others, of course, are Huawei and, and somewhat uh, ZT. That's a big issue. Because that, that basically a lot of subjects that I've covered today, and I didn't mention uh, uh, telecommunications in great details. Uh, I think, you know, it's one of the key subjects of the future. Because you know everything is going digital. Anybody who travels to China knows that today, you know, the no cash economy and the use of digital ways is just everywhere. So I think European Europeans need to put their acts together on that one as well. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I mean, I think it's not just with um, the five G, but I think if you look at like digital payment systems, satellite, AI, there's a whole range of areas now where you're really seeing two competing standards emerging in the West with one system and in China with a different system. And I think for a lot of countries, particularly those along the Belt and Road, they're going to be forced to take, choose one system or another. It's going to be very difficult to mix, say, your internet access with one system and with another. So I do think that's going to be a huge area of challenge moving forward. Um, one thing struck me when you're asking, a lady was asking about, you know, research centers and think tanks. I mean, I, well, last time I was in China, Yidai Lu had been pretty much uh, replaced by Da Wenqiu. I mean, two years ago, everyone was asking me to join a research project on Belt and Road. The last visit, they'd forgotten Belt and Road, and they all wanted to join in on a Greater Bay development project. Because... People follow where the money is, and that's where money is coming from the Chinese government at the moment. 
Uh, other uh, questions uh, people have? I know people have to go off to class, so please feel free. Yes, the gentleman over there, listen. Um, hi, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Lecour. My name is Thomas Kivana. Uh, I work at the Fletcher School, and my research is on Belt and Road and U.S. grant strategy. Um, I was wondering if you could say a few words about your reading of Russia's influence, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, and the potential synergies or the potential tensions with uh, China and its agenda for those sub-regions. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, you know, I've spent some time in Central Asia over the past uh, five years. I go there every year. And what strikes me, really, is uh, when I go to Central uh, Europe or Eastern Europe, even though I was telling this little anecdote about, about um, uh, Chinese uh, relations with uh, former members of the Soviet bloc in, the, in Eastern Europe, I don't believe, you know, Eastern Europe is... Uh, that close to China, but in a way, it's an easier go uh, for Chinese investors because there is no political stake there. I mean, the Chinese investors, if you take Serbia, for example, or so, some of the Balkan countries, uh, most of the non-EU members, with the exception of Croatia, uh, they, they welcome Chinese investments because they don't have that many other options, and, and there's no competition. I mean, the EU is not there. The US is not there. Um, and, and then China has been, you know, a, a very strong partner to Serbia, to Montenegro, with lots of problems, of course. In the case of Montenegro, of course, the, the debt trap has been, has been stunning. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of the countries are you know, having second thoughts, but it's kind of too late. In, in the case of Central uh, Asia, um, there are a number of problems. One of them, of course, is Russia's influence. So you may argue that the China relationship, the China-Russia relationship, is very close at, at the top leaders level. Uh, but when it comes to perceptions and, and the way people uh, see China's rise uh, on the ground, that's another story. And, and certainly in, in Kazakhstan, in Kyrgyzstan, in, in um, Uzbekistan, maybe not Tajikistan, um, they really, they are really scared of China, and 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 therefore, the governments of these countries, even though they they all technically welcome uh, Chinese investments and Chinese and, and, and China's Belt and Road, they know that they are somewhat playing with fire, and, and, uh, and you know especially with what's going on in Xinjiang and uh, and some Kazakhs. In, have been, uh, you know, have been in trouble on the on the Chinese uh, side of the border. So that's kind of affecting the situation. But you know, most of the leaders would actually praise the, the bilateral relations with China. In the case of Kazakhstan, uh, there are like fifteen or eighteen thousand uh, uh, Kazakhs, uh, Kazakh students going to China every year. Many of them would be part of BNR projects. Um, uh, but you know, they also they also have demonstrations and, and, and you know and they are somewhat worried about being sort of uh, diluted. We're talking about the greater the greater bay. That's another type of type of dilution, uh, to my point of view. But uh, for Hong Kong, uh, but uh, you know certainly they, they are a bit worried about what would happen to, to this sort of small. I mean, you know, Kazakhstan is eighteen million people um, and it's a huge piece of land. They are kind of weak. You know, to the Chinese giant, which is next door, which is developing all these infrastructures. Yes, uh, one and then two. The gentleman at the back and the lady here. Hi, thanks for an excellent talk. My name is Salman Ahmed. I'm just a regular attendee of these talks. Can you talk a little bit about how automation and 3D printing might have an effect on bilateral trade negotiations? and whether you see a shift more towards trade and services as opposed to goods in the future. Thank you. Hi, thank you for your lecture. Uh, I'm a Fletcher student from uh, the first year model students. Um, I have a question, like you mentioned before that uh, there is a kind of, uh, uh, like auditor people from Europe are not so familiar with the BRI initiative. And so uh, 
because I'm also from China. Uh, like from my perspective, like ordinary people from China are also not so familiar with the BRI initiative to Europe. Like most of their perspective are about like China's uh, foreign development uh, FDI towards like Southeast Asia. Like they know they could offer them like the uh, fundamental infrastructure constructions or like the foreign uh, FDI on the energy stuff. But when you talk about Europe, it's more like a bonus or like a future dream for those people because like ordinary people, they don't really know what they could offer to Europe. Like they know they have certain kind of high technology which is are like the state-owned corporations, but these are more related to the sensitive parts of the industry, which could not be reached an agreement so easily. So it makes like, there's a kind of like the recognition gap between those kinds of people. I know maybe they have certain kinds of uh, thoughts on the like the movement perspective, but for the uh, ordinary people, they certainly have uh, different views between the Chinese and also like the European uh, perspective. So uh, do you feel like there could be any kind of things uh, related with this kind of area? Thank you. I'm not too sure what your question is. Can you just sum it up? Uh, yes, like I would say like, because like the, uh, like uh, the ordinary peoples from Europe and China have different, like certainly different kinds of view on what they could get and offer from each other, which could be a little bit uh, conflict or like the gap between like the contract things and like also like the private sector's uh, investment. So do you think if we might need to skip the uh, state-owned corporations and only like get uh, rid of those like the state-owned uh, influence on these areas do you think like <laughs> i know i'm not coming, coming. No, no that's fine no, no i agree thank you no no i think you know uh, as i said i mean uh 70 percent of, of chinese uh you know fdi in europe are from state-owned companies so it's really appearing now from a sort of a, a private citizen point of view as as more of a sort of geopolitical plan rather than private uh, you know, companies. I mean, it, it, you know, when you have Chinese uh, private investors, I mean, it doesn't always go well, but you know, at least you know, it, it's a private company talking to another private company. When you have a state-owned enterprise, you're talking about the Chinese state, right? So that's kind of scary for a number of people. And they, they see you know, state-owned uh, enterprises or state entities acquiring pieces of land, including agricultural land, and um, you know, wanting to build projects, which is you know somewhat uh, um, contrary to the interests of, of, of the receiving countries, somewhat. And at least that's how people see it. You know, we live in a very changing environment with a lot of you know populism and all kinds of things that 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 scare people. You know, uh, wherever they, they sit, and including in the West, and including you know in, in America, which is why we, we have uh, Donald Trump. Uh, that's one of the reasons. Um, so, so you know, the, the problem is China cannot. The Ch a Chinese investor cannot cannot put its flag in its pocket. Cannot say, "Well, I'm not Chinese." You know? And if you're a state-owned enterprise, well, people are not stupid. They know what a, a state-owned enterprise is. They understand. It's pretty easy. And at the same time, you have this problem of market access in China, which is still still unsolved as of today, and and, and not not on the way of being solved, to be honest, because uh, you, you mean, the EU and, 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 and China, their last summit, decided they were going to have a deal, uh, a bilateral investment treaty by 2020. You know, it doesn't look likely at the moment. There's really very little progress. So, you know, from a people point of view, uh, it's a very, very you know, mixed picture. And by introducing a concept like the, the Belt and Road, it doesn't make things easier. I think China it's, it's, it, it is its own advocate and its own PR company, so to speak. And, and, and Belt and Road as a global concept, as far as I can tell, is, is still unconvincing to a number of uh, people. On automation, um, yeah, of course, I mean, China is moving from being a, 
a manufacturing country to, to a more uh, service uh, industry oriented economy. Uh, and that's why I was referring to uh, digitalization and many of the companies that we hear about. Um, uh, now that, that's really another topic, but you know, the, the question is, you know, since you know, when you go to China, you cannot use any of the sort of uh, the Western social media or many of the brands that we are familiar with that you cannot use. And China has its own brands that are, that are trying to expand also in, in, in the rest of the world. There's obviously a risk that you know, these, two, um, these two blocks will also have some problems. And the, the, the coupling, you know, it comes to mind when it comes to Okay, I'm afraid we've reached the bewitching hour. So thanks all for attending and join me again in thanking Philippe for the great. You've been listening to Ashcast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.